and we love how you guys lead us in worship. So we thank you guys. We can clap for that, yeah. So we've been talking about how uh, every week we're going to have, um, we've been doing the book of Jonah, but we're going to have a life story at the end of each month. And so next Sunday, you should be here because Krista Parsons is going to share her story. She's there at the back. You can wave so everyone knows who you are. She'll share her story next week, so we're excited to hear that. Um, but we're going to be in Jonah today. I want to start off with a question. What does it mean to have a shallow faith? That's a phrase people throw around a lot. But what does it look like for someone's faith to be shallow? And what does it mean to move from a deep faith to a shallow faith? So we'll be discussing that um, as we get in our discussion this morning. So each week in this Jonah series is going to be like watching a 30-second movie clip. We've been doing like two verses at a time and moving slowly. It's going to pick up in about two weeks. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit in about two weeks. But um, each week is going to feel like a 30-second movie clip as we get into the text. And quick review, Jonah's a prophet of Israel, told by God to go preach to the Ninevites. He does the exact opposite. He gets on the ship and goes off to Tarshish or on the way to Tarshish. While on the ship, God sends a storm, and these sailors start praying to their gods. And Jonah's, meanwhile, down the belly of the ship taking a nap. And these sailors rebuke, rebuke Jonah for not praying to his God or trying to help them. And last week we talked about how sometimes the unrighteous rebuke the righteous, and the righteous deserve it. And so we talked a lot about how we see that today and how sometimes the church needs a good rebuke from the people that aren't believers. And Tim even talked about that this morning in the main service. So we're going to start in uh, verse 1, or, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 7. And it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Before we dive into this little scene here, I want to talk about how the ancient world saw the gods. And for them, God was always a plural, never singular. They had a God for everything. So much like Hinduism today, they had a God for anything you could think of back then. They patterned how they saw the gods after how they saw themselves. So in Christianity, we say things like we are made in God's image, but the ancient people would, would actually remake the gods in their own image. So what I mean by that is they would think about people and mankind, and we know that each one of us, you need more than one person in your life, right, to be a, a successful person. You need, you need more than one person's help in your life. Like you've got teachers, you've got coaches, you've got parents, you've got, well, siblings don't really help you that much, do they? But you've got various people in your lives, and this is kind of how they saw the gods. So they would think to themselves, well, we need more than one person in our life to help us in everyday life. So, of course, we need more than one God. And so this is how they saw the gods. They saw the gods as being in charge of certain aspects of nature and certain aspects of their lives. And so this is why many of them worshipped many different gods. So you would never, so like in today's culture, you would never call a plumber for a sick dog, right? And you would never, in, in their culture, you would never call on the God of war for your love problems. Unless, of course, you want to make war on your ex, right? Then you might call on the God of those different gods. But 
in the ancient world, listen, in the ancient world, they would observe things like natural things, like day and night. There are times when I think about this in my sharper intellectual moments where I will, um, I'll be outside looking at the stars or looking at the sun in the daytime. I don't stare at the sun too long, don't worry. But, um, but I look at just nature and you think to yourself, how does an ancient person, how do they interpret these things? Because we know, of course, we know science, so we know there's an explanation. But just natural phenomena, like how incredible it was for them to observe things like a thunderstorm and what that might look like to someone who's an ancient person. And, of course, they would get used to it over time. But, man, that's like a natural phenomenon that would blow your mind if you don't understand the, 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 the science behind it, right? So what did they start to do? They, they started to see there must be a God behind that sun. There must be a God behind the storm. There must be a God behind everything they saw. They saw as attached to some God or some force. And we've got explanations for those things, but they didn't know how it all worked. So they believed back then that mankind could somehow work alongside the gods to bring order to the chaos. And that might be what these sailors believed here in this ship. Whenever you experience a huge storm, I can see how they thought that there was a God behind it. When I think about the most terrified I've ever been in a storm, it was March 2000 before... Any of y'all were born, right? And this was, well, not, I didn't say, you know, leaders. The leaders are an exception, but, um, but the students. But in, in the year 2000, I was, I was in Arlington. Actually, I was in Dallas. I was working in Dallas at this job. It was my gap year between, like, undergrad and seminary. I hadn't started seminary yet. And I had this job in Dallas, and there was, like, this little gym next to the place I worked. So I'd go there after work and work out before I drive back to Arlington. And it's like a sunny day in Dallas. It's beautiful outside. It's a, sunny, it's a sunny spring day. And I'm looking on the TV screen in the gym, and I see this huge front, like, heading towards Dallas. And everyone's saying, like, this is going to be a huge storm. There's going to be hail. There's going to be high winds. It's going to be crazy. And I, I have to drive towards it to get home. And so I'm like, I better get in the car and leave. That's heading my way. I want to beat the storm back to where I have to go to Arlington. And so I get in my car, and I'm heading back towards Arlington, and suddenly there's this huge black cloud just coming right at me. I'm trying to get on the road and get back to Arlington before this thing hits. And so this thing ended up being this hugely destructive storm, ended up being this massive tornado in downtown Fort Worth. There's a picture of it. And it hit downtown Fort Worth. It knocked out some buildings like this. And I'm just a few miles to the east of this thing. It took out one of the high-rise buildings. You can't really see that too well, but it took out all the windows in this high-rise building in downtown. And I will tell you, I'm on Interstate 30 heading west towards Arlington, and, and I-30 becomes like a river. There's hail pelting my car. I just bought a new car. And I'm thinking to myself, this interstate is about to turn into a river, and I'm going to get swept away. Like, I was literally fearful for my life in this moment. And so as I'm driving down Interstate 30, there are people that are parked under the overpasses taking shelter from the hail, which is creating this massive traffic jam. I'm just trying to get off the highway and find shelter. I finally make it off of an, off of an exit, and I go to a parking lot and just get under a tree 
in my car and just wait the thing out. Like I was literally fearing for my life in this moment. And so what's the most, that's, that's by far the most terrified I've been in a storm. But the thing is, I was still on land, at least in theory. I was still on land, at least in theory. But these guys are in a ship in the middle of the sea. And they're on this boat in the middle of a sea. And it was very common back then to attach a god to a storm. They saw that there'd be, there, there'd have to be, there would need to be a god behind the storm that they're experiencing. And so if someone did that today, of course, we'd think they're crazy. But these men happen to be right. There was a god behind the storm. But it wasn't the usual suspects. It was the one true God. It was the God of Jonah. These sailors not only attach the storm to a God, but they attach it to sin and evil. They determine that someone has sinned and we're going to figure out who it is. So they start casting lots. Now this would be like modern day, like rolling dice. So what that looked like, they may have had little stones, one side light, other side dark. And they may have had two stones. And if you rolled at someone, two dark sides up meant no. Two light sides up meant yes. A light and a dark meant throw again. And so they begin throwing these little lots at each sailor. And they get no, no, no. And then suddenly they throw them at Jonah. There's two light sides up. And he's the one. They know he's the one. Now Jonah already knows this. But now they all know. Who it is. So he's trying to hide in the belly of the ship, and now all the eyes are on him, and he's the culprit. Now the ship turns into a courtroom, and they begin to ask some questions. So look at verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So their first question isn't an obvious answer. They're wondering if, if they did something wrong. Are they helping Jonah do something wrong? Are they guilty by association? They have all kinds of questions they're trying to think through in their minds when they ask these questions. Their second question concerns his job. What do you do? Well, that's a question we would ask somebody today, right? Maybe not in the middle of a storm. Like, what do you do for a living? That's not why they're asking the question. Like, when people ask me, what I do, and I say I'm a pastor, they usually run away from me, right? But that's a common question to ask in today's culture, but the reason why they're asking the question is very specific. They're trying to figure out which God he ticked off. Because their next few questions concern his origin. Another question we'd ask today, because the ancients believed in three different kinds of gods, like personal, family, and also national. So asking these questions wasn't just to satisfy their curiosity, but these questions are linked to the bigger question, which is, which God has Jonah upset? Each nation had their own national God. And so if they knew his people, they could know which one he's ticked off. Each profession had its own gods. So they're trying to figure out which God or gods have, has this guy ticked off. Look down at verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So right here, Jonah distinguishes his God from their gods. And you see, they believed in a God of the sea, but Jonah believes in the one who made the sea. 
And so notice the first thing he says. He says, I'm a Hebrew. So his ethnicity is the first thing he throws out at these sailors. I think it's not much different than today. When, when someone says, ask you to identify yourself, you identify as an American. Of course, here, Texan trumps American, right? Don't you, isn't that how you guys live down here? Who's, who's here that's not from Texas originally? Raise your hand. A, a handful. Like, don't you feel like you're always out looking in? Like, you're on the outside. You never totally assimilate. You weren't born here. You don't belong here. That's how I feel sometimes. And I even married into the state. I'm married into your state, and I still feel that way. All right? But you often will will use that. You use that as your identity. Like, I'm a Texan, or I'm an American. We tend to think of ourselves that way. And this is what Jonah's doing. He's saying, he's saying I'm a Hebrew. He's saying his ethnicity first. Then he says, and I fear the Lord. He seems to link his ethnicity with his religion. Again, much like today. People link Christianity with being an American or being Texan. Like, I'm, I'm an American, so of course I'm Christian. I'm a Texan, of course I'm Christian. So Jonah says he fears the Lord, but it's in the sense of running from God, not in the sense of I worship the one true God. Look, I don't, I don't take this statement by Jonah here as some statement of repentance. Like, he's had this realization that, oh, yeah, that's who I am. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the one true God. He's saying it, but I don't, I don't take it as some statement of repentance or some big moment in the story that he's turning now to God in a true sense of the word. And the reason for that is Jonah has this shallow and superficial spirituality. Remember, in week one, we talked about how Jonah had this God in his imagination, how God was supposed to be, and God didn't match up with that, and so Jonah got angry about that. We talked about how all of us have this idea in our minds about how God is supposed to be, and at some point, that's going to come in conflict with the real God, the one true God. And how you make sense of that conflict is going, to, is going to chart the course of your life. And this is what happened to Jonah. You see, Jonah had a loyalty to his people. And when God told him to go to preach to the Ninevites, he saw that as betraying his national identity. He sensed a conflict between his loyalties to his people and loyalty to God's word. And loyalty to his people won out. I think we, just, we see the same kind of thing among Christians today. I think of many Christians today look at certain parts of the world as just blow them up. Just eliminate them. Instead of having a heart and a passion to go reach them, or when they come to us, reach them and live with them and and. Do like Jesus did, and in the flesh, go and be with them and witness to them. Instead of thinking of it like that, we just think of them as other and just get rid, eliminate. That's how Jonah was thinking of the Ninevites. I think of, when I think of how you and I tend to view certain groups in our world, I've got a friend uh, who's on staff here at the church now, Brandon Brewer, many of you know him, I think now. And when he was... um, 
my first trip to go to the United Arab Emirates, where Brandon was for a few years. And we're over there, and Brandon was talking about this friend that he had. And he said, this friend that's a Muslim, he was talking to this friend, and he said, he said, hey, you should come back to Texas sometime and visit where I'm from in Texas. And his Muslim friend said this to him. He goes, I would never go to Texas. And he said, why? And he goes, I don't want to get killed. And he's referring to, like, people blowing up, like, shooting up theaters and shooting up schools, and that's what they hear about. And so here you have this person that's a Muslim who many Americans would be scared of, maybe. And we hear stories about their country. Guess what? They hear stories about our country, too. And it scares them. And so when I heard that, I thought, you know what? This is interesting. Because so many people are scared to set foot in his country because they're terrified, and he's terrified to come over here. And so what I, what I, I find this interesting because I, I, want, to, I want to get this, this last point here. I think for a lot of us who struggle with this, this national identity. We should never allow national identity to trump spiritual identity. We should never let our status as an American citizen or a Texan, your national identity, trump your spiritual identity. And this is the thing that that Jonah was guilty of. What does it say about us if this is true of us? I think it says our faith isn't a real faith or it's shallow at best if this describes us. One writer says it this way. Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it is not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. So first I want to talk to, if you identify yourself as a Christian, I want to talk to you first. Instead of our identity being rooted in God's love for us, we tend to find our identity in others' approval. And here's my fear for a lot of us. Is that where, where we live, right here, one way to get approval is to play the Christian game. And here's why that's so dangerous. So one of the dangers of living in the Christian subculture where we lives here in Texas, is because you want approval from family and friends and other people, is that you're tempted to play the Christian game to get the approval, which I think is more dangerous than just outright rejection of Christianity. Because you you get just enough, doctors would call this an inoculation. You get just enough of the real thing to feel like you've got it, but you really don't. And then at some point in your life when trials hit and storms hit, like your faith implodes and you you reject the whole thing. And I would say for someone that can reject the whole thing and walk away and say, I don't believe that anymore, I would say you never really had it. And then you think that you had it, and you've been there, done that, tried that, and so you live the rest of your life maybe as just someone who just goes, you know what, I want no part of that because I, I, I've tried that. It's like, I'm not sure you've really tried it. I'm not sure you ever really had it. 
And listen, my, my role is never, I can't judge someone's salvation. I'm just telling you what I hear sometimes when people talk about where they've come from and where they are now. And so that's for the, the believer. And if you're not yet a believer, you might look at how some Christians live and you might say, yeah, you see, the ideas he's expressing in this quote you might look at how some Christians live and you might say, you know, see, this is why I don't believe in that garbage. Because I see this dichotomy between what they say they believe and what they and how they live. And they're all hypocrites. It's a bunch of garbage. But do you realize, do you realize what you're saying when you say that? You're just pointing out the very thing that God speaks against all through the Bible. When you when you call out Christians for hypocrisy, and you should. You're just simply pointing out what's in here. Again, it, it makes no sense to, to throw out this because you see Christians, quote unquote, who don't live out their faith properly when all of that is addressed in here. You find that you actually agree with the words of Jesus when you, when you do that. And I would also ask you this question. Do you believe, do you live out all your beliefs perfectly? If you don't identify with Jesus yet in your life, you're not yet a Christian, and you're, you're blaming the hypocrisy of Christians for you not being a Christian, I would ask you this question. Do you live out all of your beliefs perfectly? I would, I would still think not. And so you're going to see lots of Christians that don't live out their beliefs perfectly. That's going to happen. But it's also addressed in here. It's addressed in this book. You see, shallow Christianity is to allow other identities to trump our spiritual identity. And so what does this shallow identity lead to? Well, it leads to not being able to see yourself accurately. There's a character in the Gospels that I think ties into Jonah. And it's the character, it's the, uh, the person, Peter. You see, Jonah is a prophet, and he's proud about it. Peter was a disciple, and he's also kind of proud about it. Remember back in John 13, Peter swore that if, that if persecution came, that he would stay with Jesus while others abandoned him. He was bragging about it. He was saying, they're going to abandon you, and I'm going to stay with you. And then what happens to Peter? He denies him three times. He ends up being a coward. Now, how could Peter be so blind to himself? There's a couple of different things I want you to see. There's a couple of results of flawed identity. Not seeing yourself in the proper light. Number one, obviously, there's a blindness to one's real self. For Peter, his identity was rooted in how great of a Christ follower he thought he was. And he saw his relationship with Jesus as something he had achieved. And he viewed himself as more courageous than other people as better than other people. He wasn't going to let Jesus down. When the trials hit, he was going to be the one standing right there with him. He promised him that. This is why it must have been so devastating when he denied Christ three times. Because when you put all your stock, all your stock in how brave you are, it's hard to admit that you're really afraid. And I think this is where some of us here are wrestling right now, is 
you've been putting all your stock in how great of a Christian you are, how good you are, how good how good you are at following the rules. But if you continue down that path, you'll never be able to admit sin and weakness. Never really see yourself for who you really are. One of the things that I always find interesting, and I won't talk long about this, but you know, every every year we we take up a little survey from our students here, and and it's been very helpful. It's taught me a lot. There are things that we need to see, like blind spots that we have that we want you to point out to us. And so I appreciate feedback always. But one of the things that always will come up almost every year, at least a handful of people will say things like this, where they'll say things like, you know, I just feel like, like I want depth. And I don't feel like I get depth here. Whether it's like Sunday mornings or Wednesdays. And, and trust me, like that's good. We want that kind of feedback. But I will tell you, that there is never a moment where me or my leaders are thinking about, how can I dumb this down to our students? That's never going through our minds. We are always trying to think of, like, how can we deepen you? How can we help you grow? How can we make this challenging for you? But when I think about the question, or when, when I think about some of those kinds of statements when students make them, I always want to ask the question, like, what do you mean by that exactly? Because I think what some of them might mean might not be the same thing as, like, deep faith. So what I mean by that is I think what they might mean sometimes is I want to be challenged theologically. Like, the concepts y'all are talking about, like, I already got that. I want us to talk about, like, controversial stuff, like, challenging stuff. And they want to but that's what I think some of them might mean. I could be wrong about that. I think that's what some might mean when they say that. And here's what I will, I'll tell you about that idea. If you see growing a deep faith as just learning new concepts or like new information, that's not what it means to grow a deep faith. I want to get to the next point here, I'll kind of show you where I'm going with this when I, when I talk about, like, what does it mean? We're, we're getting there. Just stay with me. So we'll, we'll pause on that for a second, on what it means to grow a deep faith. But the second thing, result of flawed identity is this. It's hostility for people who are different than you. If you recall what happened when they came to arrest Jesus, what did, going back to Peter, what did Peter do? What did he do? He cut off someone's ear. He tried to attack one of them. So when your identity is based on achievement, not only can you not admit your flaws, but you feel the need to reinforce your greatness by being hostile to other people. And so Peter and Jonah, they share this common thread. Based on their self-image, they base their self-image on spiritual achievements. Peter has no concern for the Roman soldier. And Jonah has no concern for the Ninevites or the sailors in his boat. Are you hostile to other people? And I don't just mean like other groups out there in the world. I mean people that are in your school. People that are in your family. People that would identify like you 
as a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Are you hostile towards them? Do you see them as outside? You see, Peter and Jonah, they share this common thread. They base their self-image on spiritual achievement. And so I want to look at the last verse here, verse 10. It says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So what does that tell us? What does, that, what does verse 10 tell us? Well, it tells us that these men are more aware of Jonah's sin than he is. These pagan sailors see Jonah's sin more than Jonah sees it. So there's blindness to one's real self. He's got a flawed self-identity. So one of the markers of shallow faith, so here it is. If you're thinking of the question, how do I move from shallow faith to deep faith, here's the answer to that question. One of the markers of a shallow faith is an inability to see our own sin. And if we can't see our own sin, we will never see the need for God's mercy. That is what it means to have a deep faith. How does someone move from shallow faith to deep faith? They begin to see how desperate they need his mercy. That's depth. Like, you can spend your life thinking that to grow a deep faith means that you chase big, thick books. And that you challenge yourself with certain concepts and information. And listen, I am all about those things. I love many. But you know what? i got to check my own, myself and say, you know what? This doesn't mean I have a deep faith because I have a deep knowledge. And so do you see your own sin, and do you see how desperately you need God's mercy? That's what it means to grow deep faith. And Jonah's about to see how much he needs God's mercy, and that mercy is about to show up in a way he does not expect. I'm going to pray for you. God, thank you for these students. Thank you for the chance that we have to go into your word and to see into a story that is all too much like us. God, I pray that as they think and talk in their groups about what you want to show them through this passage and through the story of Jonah, I pray that um, you'd bring about surrender. You'd bring about reconciliation of community. that you'd help them to, to know that you want them living on mission. As they reach friends, as they reach our city, as they reach the world, God, may we never be people who are blind to our sin and thus blind to the mercy that you want to give to us. We pray that for ourselves and for these students this morning, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have your discussion questions.